Whether you're thinking about giving the gift of art or even marking a milestone in your life, like a new job, anniversary, or buying your first house with a piece, art is a unique way to celebrate those special moments as well as fuel a lifetime of curiosity. Now in its 20th year, I'm very excited to say that the Affordable Art Fair will be back in beautiful Battersea Park from the 12th to the 15th of March and on Hampstead Heath from the 3rd of April to the 3rd of May. Each fair showcases over 100 galleries, bringing together over 1,000 original artworks with everything from limited edition prints by well-known names to a curated selection of ones to watch. And don't forget, National Art Pass holders can enjoy 50% off tickets to fairs by showing their pass at the door or by using the code ARTFUND online. To book tickets and shop over 10,000 hand-picked artworks, simply visit affordableartfair.com. Thanks to our sponsor, the Affordable Art Fair, for making this podcast possible. As you can probably tell, visiting galleries and museums is one of my absolute favourite activities. And our new sponsor, the National Art Pass, makes that a whole lot easier, smoother and cheaper for us art lovers and gallery goers. Not only does the National Art Pass grant you free entry to over 240 museums, galleries and historic houses across the UK, such as Kensington Palace, Cardiff Castle and the Horniman Museum, it also gives 50% off major exhibitions at places such as the British Museum, Tate, v National Gallery, National Portrait Gallery and so many more. And we all know that they have some pretty good upcoming and current exhibitions, from Dora Maher at the Tate Modern to Elizabeth Payton at the National Portrait Gallery. Membership is just £70 for an entire year, and for those under 30, it's a mere £45. And for lucky Great Women Artists listeners, you can also receive an exclusive tote bag designed by Malika Fev when you buy a National Art Pass by entering the code GREAT at checkout. Thanks to our sponsor, the National Art Pass, for making this podcast possible. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. very excited to say that my guest today is one of the most important and groundbreaking curators working in the world right now, Dr. Zoe Whitley. Currently the senior curator at London's Hayward Gallery, where we are very excitingly recording today, Zoe has formerly held positions such as curator of international art and research curator at Tate Modern, as well as curator roles at Tate Britain and the V&A. Completing her BA in Art History at Swarthmore College and MA at the Royal College of Art in History of Design, Zoe has since obtained her PhD at the University of Central Lancashire, supervised by the legendary artist Professor Lubaina Hamid. Continuing to curate some of the most groundbreaking exhibitions today, including The Shadows Took Shape at the Studio Museum in Harlem, Jenny Holzer at Tate Modern, and earlier this year, the British Pavilion at the 58th Venice Biennale featuring the artist Kathy Wilkes, 
Zoe is also the co-curator of one of the most successful exhibitions ever. The 2017 exhibition, Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power, 1963 to 1983, originally held at Tate Modern here in London, which has since toured to the Brooklyn Museum, Crystal Bridges Museum, the Broad in Los Angeles, and currently is on view at the de Young Museum in San Francisco. One of the most successful exhibitions in the world and one of the most incredible exhibitions I've ever visited, Soul of a Nation shone a bright light on the vital contribution of black artists to a dramatic period in American art and history and featured some of the most important artists from those working in the 20th century to those working today, starting in 1963 at the height of the civil rights movement. And one artist in particular who featured in this touring exhibition and who had an entire room dedicated to her was the now 93-year-old Betty Saar, who was the current subject of solo exhibitions at both MoMA and LACMA and who was the artist we are very excitingly going to be discussing today. Welcome, Zoe. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for having me, Katie. That's a very big introduction <laughs> to live up to. Well, it's all you. So, Soul of a Nation totally took the world by storm. It was such an important exhibition. I think what I found amazing was the fact I'd never seen so many artists in that show and actually in real life before. Actually, one artist I always dreamt of seeing was Betty Saar and how lucky that we were able to witness some of her most iconic, political and important works here in the UK and see it in the wider context of the 20th century. So sort of in a nutshell, could you start off by describing Betty Saar's work to us? It's not easy to do, particularly when you have someone who's been making work their entire lives. It's no understatement to say that. She's constantly recognized her own artistic power from the time she was a little girl. So what I would say really always resonated for me about Betty's work was this way that she's able to simultaneously render beautiful some of the most difficult and ugly aspects of what it means to be alive. The struggle, the pain, the vulnerability, and the way that she's able to bring that together, really in a way that feels like conjuring, using recognizable materials or even things that other people might discard. And she's able to imbue them with a very special energy by bringing them together. And all of a sudden you're able to see wondrous connections in new ways. So whether that's the feather of a bird or a small rusty object or a locket, there's so many things that are imbued with memory. And one of the things that she said that I really relate to is that in finding and sourcing these objects that have this other history, a history that maybe we don't necessarily know, that she doesn't necessarily know. You take something like a bracelet, that bracelet would have been on somebody's arm. It was part of someone else's body. And the reverence and respect that she has for those connections, it might sound strange to say, but I've always really felt that. And having grown up in Los Angeles, I think I was lucky to have seen a number of her works from a formative age, and it always stayed with me. When was the first time you saw her work, do you think? It was probably when I was a teenager, because that's when I was making like very emo, (laughs) terrible (laughs) artwork myself. And when I first started learning about most of the artists who were in Soul of a Nation eventually, or those who were 
in that orbit are part of the same generation. So I was a big fan of Elzir Couture growing up, and certainly people like Charles White. And so having access to museums like um, the Pasadena Museum of Art, and LACMA, and other places made it possible to see that work. And I think what felt really like we were on the right track mm. with the exhibition was that the first time I went to see Betty at her house, and I had no idea that her house was very near where I went to high school, oh, wow. um, but she was completely receptive to the concept for the exhibition and the fact that we were led by what artists thought. And so she was very quick to say, I'm constantly asked if I'll put in a good word to the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive, which holds one of Betty's best-known works, The Liberation of Aunt Jemima. And she said, but in this case, it really makes sense to be in this show. And I thought, like, oh, we're definitely on the right track. Amazing. And what was her studio like? It's beautiful. It's the studio... And home, it's not that one ends and the other begins. Yeah. So she's got a warm and welcoming home in Laurel Canyon in Los Angeles. Um, she shares it with an adorable and very aged pug <laughs> named Miss Mojo. And there's beautiful tropical plants everywhere. It's a very fertile place, yeah. as you would expect. But also one where there are wonderful works, mostly you know through art trades by... John Outerbridge and Noah Purifoy. You see a whole world. Yeah. You see how much she's part of a beating heart of this creative community. Because she's been there since 1962 or something. Absolutely. And two of her three daughters are also artists, Alison Saar and Leslie Saar. So there's wonderful works of theirs there. And also so many elements that are like pregnant with possibility. Mm, So, you know, drawers full of rusty things or wonderful clocks or bird cages. And everything is incredibly orderly. But there's just a wonderful cavernous sense of how many different types of things are there kind of waiting yeah. potentially to be kind of roused <gasps> yes, and, so and used. It's great. Totally. So Betty Saab was born in 1926 in Los Angeles. Can you tell me a bit about her upbringing and maybe what might have even influenced her and her surroundings to become an artist? So she was raised in Los Angeles and Pasadena. Um, she was raised by women, also creative people in their own right. Yeah. So seamstresses, quilt makers, people who were able to again, take a raw material and turn it into something bigger and greater and more wondrous than the sum of its parts. Also, because she grew up in Los Angeles, she was able to see firsthand um, Simon Rodia's Watts Towers as they were being erected. Yeah. So this would have included the mosaic elements of you know broken tiles coming together to make wonderful murals, but also various elements of metal and all sorts of things that constructed really an incredibly formidable work of what we now know to be like public art of really seismic uh, cultural significance and in an area where I think if we're used to the kind of stark divisions of high art say and a different type of making we wouldn't necessarily recognize the power in something like the Watts Towers but Betty immediately did. 
so she grew up in Los Angeles, and I know that she went studied at UCLA. She USC. did. Do you know if she always wanted to be an artist from the kind of get go, or do you think well, it's something that she? Well, one thing that's important to keep in mind, despite how prolific she remains today, what it would have meant to be a black woman and a university student at the time. In fact, she was actively discouraged, along yeah. with other black students in her cohort, from studying fine art and was directed toward design. Mm. And so certainly in her young working life as a mother, um, she was making costume designs for theater. And anybody who's actually in the Los Angeles area, those are now held by the Getty okay. archive. Wow. And so they're really, really wonderful sketches of these fantastic, like luminous, fluorescent pink wow. and orange costume designs. And we were able to go as a group on this kind of fantastic soul of a nation family <laughs> field trip, it felt like, to the Getty. And she was able to talk through the really difficult realities of what it meant to believe in yourself and to pursue a creative life when, you know, there weren't necessarily clear financial routes to yeah. success, to being able to pay your bills mm. and to make sure your children had school shoes and those sorts of things. So design was a practical means to a creative end. But alongside that, Betty was also active making prints that related to her own circumstances at the time. Mm. So kind of domestic scenes, mother and daughters, but things that still had, I would say, a quiet power. But she was also very much influenced by the artworks that she's seeing in and around Los Angeles. So there are other assemblage artists working um, like Noah Purfoy and John Outerbridge, um, people like George Herms, who are perhaps less well-known, yeah. but also having seen uh, Joseph Cornell's work in the museum in Pasadena. And that's probably the example that gets used most often. But yeah. I always like to juxtapose <laughs> Cornell's approach of creating these worlds in boxes, despite never leaving New York. And then you have someone like Betty Saar, who's able to take the whole world, yeah. travels widely throughout Africa, Latin America, Asia, um, the Caribbean, and then to take those things and put them into mm. these boxes and these wondrous windows on the world that we are all then able to experience. Totally. And what was her experience like as a young artist? Because obviously she was raising children. How did she kind of adapt that to her practice? I think looking back, it's pretty impressive to see how someone was able to do it so smoothly. But mm. certainly it would have been a challenge to do so, not least because, you know, there'd always be some ways in which the intersectional aspects of Betty's life would mean that she was always in a slightly different position to those around her. So within a community of black artists, yeah. she was one of relatively few women. Within a second wave feminist group, she was one of few black women. So constantly being aware of her position in terms of race, in terms of gender, but never allowing those things to subsume the work that she wanted to make, you know, always being an artist first and finding ways to express a whole wondrous range of things. And I think also very particularly tapping into this sense of an intuition that she recognized from very early on in her life to harness 
a whole range of cosmic possibilities and religious belief systems from all over the world and to use that in a very kind of talismanic way in her work. So all of those things are, are constantly, constantly interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, her worlds, in a way, these kind of small worlds that she creates, whether it's through printmaking or assemblage, they feel like this place from a kind of another world, actually. Some of the artworks have, you know, actual mojos within them. Yeah. So there will be a little something charged with power in a pouch, you know, that we're not to open. So we, we won't know what's in there, but we can feel it. I was talking to an artist I admire a great deal, Kenyatta Hinkle, about yeah. that. And she says she can completely feel it. And I think part of what those early conversations with Betty also began to initiate was uh, very quickly a way forward that we were able to, I think, make such a powerful statement at Tate and then at the Broad to again revise that by having this room that looked specifically at Betty Sarr's exhibition from 1973 at Cal State Los Angeles. And there was something about looking at all of these black and white photographs, but still having some sense, like, I don't know, just a glimmer of the power within the works that, you know, got me started asking her all these questions about what colors the walls were and how we might be able to recreate it. So the fact that she was able to, and really gave us her blessing to go on that journey. Mm. And she recreated a panel in that kind of smoky gray sfumato and also wrote some very precise instructions for how the wall painters would paint it. Yeah. And she recommended that they wear like breathable cotton clothing <laughs> rather than those kind of synthetic yeah. paint suits. So that that same kind of generosity coupled with an attention to detail is yeah. really part of just how she is in the world and yeah. every aspect of how she works. So. No, I, th- I think it's um, f- fascinating. And so kind of in the 1960s, she was also organizing a lot of exhibitions. Absolutely. So she was organizing exhibitions, the Women's House in Los Angeles. So again, this way of starting to think about the lacunae within the feminist movement. So this sense that there were many white middle-class women, you know, absolutely rightly advocating for women's rights, but effectively for their women's rights and not necessarily being inclusive or intersectional in terms of their thinking. So the types of exhibitions she was then able to put on and really to subvert some of the stereotypes. So one of the exhibitions was called The Sapphire Show. So she takes this character who in... American popular radio would have been emasculating her husband, kind of loud and aggressive, and using that as a way to actually take up space and claim space and to bring other artists into the fold and to have their work shown. So understanding that it was possible to occupy many of these spaces simultaneously and really to just keep steadily making work. I think there is a slight misconception that it's only now that people are beginning to recognize her work. And yet when she was in her fifties and a documentary was made about her, they were saying the same thing then. (laughs) And this was following the solo exhibition that she'd had at the Whitney Museum of Art in 1975. So what I think I would really want to impress upon, you know, your listeners is that Betty has forged her own path to greatness and is sort of made a route for success on her own terms. And the fact that 
a new generation or a different set of institutional powers are waking up to the work is a different set of circumstances to thinking that you know, the work is only now being understood. She had her first solo exhibition in Europe in 2015 um, in the Netherlands in a show called Still Ticking. And that was really excellent to see that even in an international realm, there was still room for the work to, to grow and to take people by surprise, but it had never stopped. Yeah. So kind of coming back to that work in the 1960s, she's making the printmaking, but then she's kind of discovers assemblage in a way. How does that kind of come into her life? What's she inspired by when she discovers assemblage? Well, I think some of the reference points would be other artists and makers in the city. So Simon Rodia, George Herms, the fact that she's aware and wants to somehow address the barbed pain in so many representations of us as black people in collectible Americana. So she would go to flea markets and locate these kind of black collectibles, you know, that are usually designed to poke fun or could be that something like a 19th century trade card would be extolling the virtues and cleaning powers of a bleach or a soap by juxtaposing it with um, black skin. And so what she was able to do was to think about how she could take these images designed to hurt and to disempower and charge them with power. So with some of the works where she would then embed images within a window pane, like Black Girl's Window or Black Boy's Window, they become self-portraits of a type and as a way of thinking about how these disparate elements, some of which are recognizable, we know a door frame or a window pane when we see it, and how these things can be put together in new ways was then a means for her to make a very heartfelt and kind of also something in the gut, this kind of very bodily and visceral statement about the power of images and about how you can take something so ugly and transform it into something beautiful. And certainly by the time she came to make works like The Liberation of Aunt Jemima, that's exactly what she was doing. So having found an Aunt Jemima figurine, which had a kind of a recess in the skirt. Mm. So that's where a notepad would have been. So what's particularly yeah, ugly is the word I keep mm. coming back to about the existence of that as an object, as it would have been in the kitchen of a home who's someone who um, in all likelihood had a black domestic. So even the writing of flour, sugar, butter for the next week's shop you know, someone would be looking at a mocking image of themselves. And so what she was able to do is embed that Aunt Jemima within a box with a repeat pattern of the logo from the famous pancake brand in the United States. But she also armed this woman where the pencil would have been um, with a shotgun. (laughs) And so all of a sudden... She has a completely different agency, a completely different power. One of these trade cards that I mentioned where you have another mammy figure kind of holding a white baby and a white bleached and starched sheet. Um, You have a fist of black power in front of that. So all of a sudden, 
these images that are designed to kind of completely take power away or to make fun become actually something that, you know, if anything, you'd look at and you have to think twice. You think actually, you know, I wouldn't mess with that person or, you know, that's not someone who I can just tell what to do. She's not subservient to me. And as an artwork, it really was a game changer. Totally. I mean, this was four years after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and there must have been so much in the air as well that kind of almost enhanced her to make this sort of Well, sure, I think all of those things at the time would have spurred it on. So not only the death of Martin Luther King, but also the assassination of of Malcolm X, of so many political leaders. And again, I think it's important not to only root it in the past because, you know, Betty's made recent works about Michael Brown, you know, so another young black man who was murdered in the street by police officers. He was unarmed. So thinking about how current events shape us and how through this process of art making, we can actually get to a place of, if not healing, then certainly of empowered images rather than only images of pain. And I think as someone who's able to think through making about how wondrous these objects are and their latent powers is able to take the memory of something and charge it in a way so that a painful memory can become something that can also be a source of power. And this work was obviously in Soul of a Nation. It was. A few years ago. I mean, was it the first time? It it still is. It still is, exactly. Is this the first time that that work was actually exhibited in the UK? It is. And where did you place that work to kind of put it in the wider context of So that, Mark and I, it's not a very savvy system, but the easiest way to think of it in a shorthand <laughs> in a 12-room exhibition yeah. is they were numbered. Yeah. And so this would have been in room four, the room of LA Assemblage. So I think it's an artwork that many people know in reproduction yeah. and maybe aren't even able to understand the physical depths of it. You know, the fact that you have this kind of mise en abime, you know, like picture in a picture in a picture within this little box. And to get a sense of the three-dimensional details like the bowls of cotton or the shotgun or to understand how the figure functions and the way that she's this kind of three-dimensionally hewn figure is something that most people won't have had the chance to see. And as I said, for Betty to have specifically said, this work is constantly asked for, but not always with, due care and attention given to the why and the fact that she felt that in this instance the why made so much sense meant that we were able to present that work alongside I've Got Rhythm and Sambo's Banjo in a room with works by Noah Purifoy, John Outerbridge and Melvin Edwards. And why did you feel the need to recreate her exhibition in this exhibition? So that was the room that was the penultimate room of the exhibition where we specifically looked at how we could give people a snapshot of that 1973 exhibition at Cal State Los Angeles. Um, It was important to me in a number of ways, partly because, you know, sitting at Betty's kitchen table with Miss Mojo at our feet, I wanted to be there. Yeah. I wanted to know what it was like. I wanted to see each of those works, you know, in living color again. And we were fortunate in that a number of those works were in private collections in the Los Angeles area. Mm. We were also able to um, rely on the generosity of culturally specific museums like the California African American Museum. And 
again, to understand that it was in many instances, institutions such as that, that were keeping this history alive, that understood and recognized its cultural significance at the time, and were requiring it at a time when maybe most mainstream institutions were not, was something that felt like really, more than anything, curatorially, it answers the question, why should this be an exhibition? And again, because, as I'd mentioned earlier, it can be that thing where we flatten out the way we understand an artist's practice. So if we only think of Betty Saar in terms of liberation of Aunt Jemima, the fact that there's so many other textures and facets to the work, it felt important to draw that out, not least because what often happens, and I think this is certainly, you know, one of the things that you're advocating so well for in your podcast, is that we can view women artists through certain lenses and not through others. So we may talk about the bravery it took to make work and raise a family simultaneously, but it's still true that we don't always accord the position of a vanguard or, you know, being the first and innovating to women artists. And what Mark and I were incredibly interested in was the moment in 1970 when both David Hammonds and Betty Saar were attending what was then a kind of annual Black Artists Conference. And it took place in Chicago and the two of them went to the Field Museum. And it was as a result of that, that in the African and Oceanic galleries, they began to see a whole range of uses of materials that had these kind of spiritual powers. So they noticed these fantastic textured beads, for instance, that was actually human hair on various garments. And it was actually from that point that both Betty Saar and David Hammonds began using human hair in their artworks. But at least in the way that art criticism had told a version of the story, we tend to think of, of Hammonds' work as you know, incredibly vanguard, and Betty Saar's work in this period being consigned more to an understanding of craft-based practices yes. um, in a very gendered way. But to revisit her work right before you entered the just above Midtown room, where what you're looking at with Linda Good Bryant's vision for black vanguard practices through her New York City art gallery, was that actually you're able to see very specific connection between the two rather than this division where you know in the hands of an incredibly talented male artist we think of it as vanguard innovation and in the hands of an equally talented woman artist we then instead say like oh look it's craft it's macrame but we the way that we contextualize things is so powerful that to not have a dotted line, but to make a specific connection between both of their practices felt like something that was art historically imperative to emphasize. Totally. And I'm interested as well with the hang of her works, because it's not kind of conventional. It's not so much of a kind of work on the wall. You have to see the kind of object as a whole. You know, you were hanging works from the ceiling in that exhibition. We did that precisely because that had also happened in the 1973 exhibition. But even in the reopened MoMA in New York, the exhibition of her work is shown on these kind of 
deep purple walls, like someone's peeled What's an the aubergine. First time that they have ever painted walls. Oh no, it's really, <laughs> um, but it envelops you in this very particular way, and it takes you out of yourself. It takes you out of any preconception of a kind of antiseptic environment. Yeah, um, you're suddenly really present and really grounded with the works and knowing that Betty Saar is an artist who also ascribes powers and meanings to various colors and yeah. so in the case of the MoMA walls there being a sense of a relationship to the occult and the unknowable in this purple is something that is an extension of how we can understand her work so to present it in those kinds of contexts hopefully helps people get closer to it mm. and obviously we spoke earlier about this element of recognition and just since talking to you you know she's been such a formidable artist since the get-go since the 50s and 60s and has constantly been exhibiting but why do you think institutions are kind of now you know she is mm. so recognizable now in the sense that she has solo exhibitions at both LACMA and MoMA as we're speaking yeah I don't know I feel like I could quote Dawood Bay so another artist and photographer who was included in Soul of a Nation, who was recently talking about this on in an Instagram post. Yeah. And as much as in the media, a lot has been made about the art market. You know, the scales have fallen from its proverbial eye or eyes to all of this excellent work that maybe hadn't previously been as widely sought after. But for me, you know, and you know, as Dawood had said, it's not so much a discovery, just that, you know, it's that certain institutions, both through a generational change yeah. in the decision makers, a kind of a wider awareness of how narrow canon formation had been. There are a number of, of different variables kind of simultaneously that start to happen. So I don't think that it's any one thing, but, you know, we've also seen that there is increasingly an awareness, as it should be, of institutions wanting to correct gender imbalance yeah. that had gone unquestioned for so long. And so in that respect, wanting to also continue to accord artists their due while they're alive, mm. I think is an important part of it that's sort of accelerated anew a close looking at Betty's work. But I always just want to be cautious about the fact that, you know, the work has never stopped yeah. and that there have been art historians and people who are committed to looking at the work and showing it. It's just not always been the major institutions, or sometimes it has been, you know, as mm. I mentioned with, you know, the Whitney in 1975, yeah. but then that isn't necessarily consistent or steady. So mm. one of the things we have to think about is, you know, how do we sustain this momentum? What does that mean for works entering the collections permanently and how those are shown and circulated? You know, who's the next generation who comes up behind us? Who's then writing? They're all of those questions that we can continue to answer and look at. Totally. I mean, it's interesting because so many of my artist friends are so inspired by Betty Saar. And oh, they should be. Yeah, there, I'm inspired by her too. <laughs> there's a constant reference to her. And I think it was actually mm. since Soul of a Nation that people really discovered her work 
sorry, I hate to use that word discover, no. but you know, saw her work in the flesh. Well, I think that's yeah. what I was going to say. Maybe that's the difference. There's something very special it's so, um, it's that so a JPEG yeah. cannot yeah. replace. And I'm as addicted to Instagram as anybody, <laughs> but there is still value and something almost indescribable about seeing an artwork in the real. And so the opportunities to do that, and I've been super fortunate to do that in Betty's home or, or elsewhere, but to also be able to create the circumstances so that other people have that opportunity as well is why an exhibition should exist. You know, not everything needs to be an exhibition. Sometimes what you actually have is an essay, like yeah. a really dense theoretical essay. <laughs> and, you know, maybe the artworks are slightly tangential to what you're trying to say. But if you're being led by the artworks and wanting to bring those together and get people as close to those as possible, then it sparks so many things. How do you think Betty Saar has changed the way people look at art? That's a very good question. I'm not sure. Some of it will keep feeling and keep discovering for decades to come. I mean... She's done it most specifically kind of in her home and rearing her own children and, you know, in turn have influenced kind of people making really excellent work right now, like Karan Davis also in yeah. the Los Angeles area. You know, there, there are ways that we kind of think of these links in a chain and the way that they kind of, if we follow it back up, Betty's there. I think she has provided in some ways a roadmap so that people know that it is possible. As Lorraine O'Grady says, you know, without mirrors, we can't see ourselves. So there's some sense in which Betty Saar has become a kind of proverbial mirror for what's possible as an artist, that, you know, we don't have to buy into any of the social stereotypes that to be an excellent woman artist that you can't also be a mother. Yeah. You know, there's, you know, ridiculous things that, you know, even some artists believe, but that it's possible to do both of those things incredibly well is something that I know inspires a lot of people. Totally. And what does Betty Saar mean to you? Oh, she means so much to me. We've had um, one of our little Solovanation traditions has been <laughs> that at each of the venues where we sit together, like whenever it's oh, when we so have fun. our Solovanation meal, me and Betty and her gallerist, Julie. So that's a really nice thing. I think because Betty also means a lot to my mother, who also trained as an artist. It's oh, something wow. nice okay. that there's this yeah, multi-generational connection. I think she's just someone who is so generous, really knows knows her own mind yeah. and is able to keep going. Mm. I always, always, always use this quote. I don't know if you've had someone on the podcast talk about Phyllida Barlow, Not but yet. I love her quote about success. And she talks about how there's you know, there's wild success, youthful success. And then there's the success of an artist keeping going yes. through hell and high water. And for me, actually, Betty kind of embodies all of those things. You know, I think that at any given point, you could say like, wow, you know, success looks like X or Y, yeah. you know, being the first to do this kind of thing or the first black woman to be shown in this context. But actually... It's the longevity of the thing. Totally. It's the oeuvre as a whole mm. that just feels like a lifetime of 
unapologetic excellence. Totally. What a great way to end the podcast. So as I says, the Great Women Artists podcast, we always ask our guests, what would they say to their favourite artists? But obviously, as you know, Betty very well, I'd love to ask you, perhaps if you and Betty were to host a dinner party, who would you invite? Oh, I think it would quickly have to become a kind of seance because <laughs> what would be amazing is if we could have Betty Saar and Leslie Saar and Alison Saar and Karan Davis would have to be there. That yes. would be great. We can get a kind of Los Angeles group together. Um, and Kenyatta Hinkle, I think, should be around the table. But also Elizabeth Catlett yeah. and Alma Thomas. And we could really think about how we bring all these women together. Yeah. I think that would just be a really formidable thing. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Zoe. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to the 13th episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the amazing Zoe Whitley speaking about Betty Saar. It was such an honour to interview Zoe, having been completely overwhelmed at her 2017 show, Soul of a Nation at Tate Modern. For those interested in seeing Betty's work in the flesh, I highly recommend it. Do not miss her solo exhibitions at the Museum of Modern Art in New York until the 4th of January and at LACMA until the 5th of April 2020. The Great Women Artists podcast will be breaking for Christmas and we'll be back in early January where we have such an incredible lineup of artists, writers, curators and more all discussing this very important topic. This podcast was sound edited by the excellent Ellie Clifford and if you have been enjoying this episode so far I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps people find us and of course thank you for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me Katie Hessel. Thanks to the National Art Pass, you can now access free entry to over 240 museums, galleries and historic houses across the UK, plus 50% off major exhibitions such as the British Museum and Tate. Membership is just £70 per year and for those under 30, it's just £45. And for lucky Great Women Artists listeners, you can also receive an exclusive tote bag when you buy a National Art Pass by entering the code GREAT at checkout. Thanks to our sponsor, the National Art Pass, for making this podcast possible. Whether you're thinking about giving the gift of art or marking a milestone in your life, art is a unique way to celebrate those special moments as well as fuel a lifetime of curiosity. Now in its 20th year, I am very excited to say that the Affordable Art Fair will be back in Battersea Park from the 12th to the 15th of March and on Hampstead Heath from the 30th of April to the 3rd of May. To book tickets and shop over 10,000 hand-picked artworks, simply visit affordableartfair.com. Thanks to our sponsor, the Affordable Art Fair, for making this podcast possible. Thank you.